Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, a bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for the Ringer.com. And on the other line, he has filed three articles in six hours. He has not slept, but we have pumped him full of strong antibiotics and IV fluids, and he is ready to go. It's my colleague and co host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Yeah, I keep meaning to get a haircut and trim my beard before I go back to the ballpark, but I still look like Tanner Roark because I've been so busy writing. There's been so much baseball. There really has, and we're about to talk about all of it. So we have eliminated teams to talk about. We have the Yankees upsetting the Indians in the ALDS and moving on to an ALCS matchup with the Astros. We'll preview that in a moment. We'll talk about the John Farrell firing from the Red Sox. But first, we're going to talk about the Nationals Cubs series, which is knotted at two now, going into a game five today. That is Thursday, if you're listening to this when we put it up. And of course, this is the series that has had just about all of the starting pitching in the postseason thus far. And that continued into Wednesday when we had Steven Strasburg pitch a gem after being rumored not to be pitching, being at death's door from everything we heard, coming out and throwing a brilliant, brilliant game. And we're going to talk about this from a couple different angles, presumably. But let's start, I, I guess, just with the madness that surrounded who was going to pitch this game. And it seems like the Nationals put themselves in this situation by prematurely announcing that Strasburg wasn't going to start and putting conflicting, misleading information out there about what his health status was when he had pitched a bullpen. It was confusing. There was a lot of back and forth, but evidently Strasburg recovered enough with a night's sleep and some very strong meds to come out and look like peak Strasburg. And so part of the discourse, obviously, leading into this game was about what this would do to the perception of Strasburg, to his reputation, to his toughness if he did not take the ball in this must-win game. And I know that you had some strong feelings about that discussion. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the the only thing that really explains the message confusion is if everything happened the way the Nationals sort of said it did, that Strasburg was too sick to pitch uh, as of Tuesday afternoon and then got a good night's sleep and, and felt better. And obviously, I mean, he's been just absolute nails this yes. postseason. It's mm-hmm. like he he might have been the the 
the best player of the first round, non Jose Altuve division. He's just mm-hmm. been. I mean that the his changeup, the way his oh, changeup was, is working, that was beautiful. That oh, was just, man. <laughs> he was getting whiffs on like every two or three changeups he threw, and it was just it was darting like down in a way. It, it was. Beautiful. I think it was. Yeah. I think he threw 32 changeups and got swings and misses on 15 of them. Oh, That's when that pitch is working, it's borderline it's just, erotic. Then, yeah, it's, it is one of the most aesthetically pleasing pitches out there. It was, and he had it working, and it was a beautiful thing to see. I love me a good changeup. So, but in between, in the the intervening day or so between when Strasburg got or was was scratched originally and then got the start, it turns out just the discourse was incredible there was, was the the sense of like just in our corner of baseball internet i don't you know i don't want to run into the pauline kale nixon line again but mm-hmm. you know just the sense of whatever the nationals did it was wrong and i think just from a, a perception standpoint i don't think dusty baker really helped strasburg out with his comments about the mold like just you know <laughs> right. if he you, was trying to obviously he yeah was and trying i think to protect his player but yeah <laughs> it, there's inadvertently yeah. perhaps made him look more sensitive than if, he would have otherwise yeah because just if, say like, he's sick <laughs> Yeah, he's too sick to start. Just (laughs) say he's too sick to start, you know, when we're, you know, this and we're working on it like that's. But if you go into details, everybody's going to presume allergies are the sniffles. And, you know, Mark Teixeira said some not awesome things about it. But one thing that I think he really did nail was that Dusty Baker didn't help Strasburg out. And, you know, if you're going to scratch a guy or think about scratching a guy, uh, then, you know, you got to really play up how sick he is because you know mm-hmm. I, Strasburg's not that kind of outwardly hyper competitive person he's you know he's right. quieter he's than Max somebody Scherzer yeah, cursing than, in the dugout. yeah yeah so like he's not he's not that guy so and because he was babied so much by the Nationals and and you know scratched from the the 2012 playoffs altogether there's mm-hmm. just this this aura of strangeness and right. so it's very easy for that to turn into Strasburg is soft when you know if he's too sick to pitch he's too sick to pitch and right. my favorite part of part of this is everybody's like you know as well Strasburg should pitch even if he is sick well what if he's so sick that he turns out to be bad right and like what the hell do you think Tanner Roark's in there like this guy who's <laughs> who's been really good for the Nationals over the past few years sitting there sucking down orange juice apparently because he right. didn't get sick and thinking that you know Strasburg's having vomit and diarrhea on the mound and thinking that everybody would rather have that than mm-hmm. Tanner Roark, who's a league average starting pitcher. You know, I would find this deeply offensive if I were him. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah. Yeah. There's so much baggage with this team and this player because, as you mentioned, the history 2012, which was certainly not Strasburg's idea. It was something that the team and his agent kind of conspired to do and he went along with it, but he was not begging out of pitching. And between that and between the Nationals' early exits from the playoffs both that year and other years, there's just a lot more scrutiny on them and on Strasburg and it's not entirely fair. And obviously he's had legitimate injury issues throughout his career. He's had Tommy John surgery, etc. So he kind of has this I guess, reputation as someone who is not the workhorse, and and that's fair, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to pitch. And like you, I was worried about this going into the game because about five years ago, I wrote an article looking at times when a pitcher was sick and pitched through it. And of course, this was only times that we know because the pitcher or someone with the team came out and said he was sick, which is probably a skewed sample. But even just looking at those games, guys didn't pitch as well, which is understandable. Shocking. But they, wow. no, right. like, <laughs> they know. didn't throw as hard. They didn't 
didn't have as good results. And so it looked like this was shaping up to be that where perhaps Strasburg was pressured into this or felt obligated and he was going to take the ball at something less than 100 percent and maybe preserve his reputation, but at the expense of his team. And fortunately, that didn't end up being the case, but it certainly seemed like things were heading in that direction in the hours before first pitch. Yeah, and like that's uh, this is just sort of silliness. But what really got me was the discussion about about toughness and gutting it out, which is just a really dangerous way when we let or really dangerous thing to let jocks drive the narrative on because it's so. What really got me was you know that Strasburg by being sick. Wade Boggs said, you know, not in my foxhole. I don't want to be a teammate with a guy like that. David Ross, who, yeah. like, just for context, played with Jonathan Papelbon, who showed well, first of all, he said, this is as bad as it gets for me as a teammate, mm-hmm. and said he would have trouble looking Strasburg in the eye if they played on the same team. He played with Jonathan Papelbon, who, ch- who choked Bryce Harper in the dugout. <laughs> yeah. He played with Yunel Escobar, who got suspended for writing a homophobic slur on his, on his eye black. He played with with numerous drug cheats and domestic abusers. And, you know, that's most of all, it's really it's rich for him to say that having played with Milton Bradley, like mm-hmm. it's just the the degree to which baseball people think baseball is important just makes me absolutely sick. And if and this is just this retrograde toxic masculinity that if you you know, that suffering is something to be that it, you know, just gut it out that there's no such thing as actually being too sick or too hurt to pitch. And this shows up. This is where Joe Maurer, who if he takes one more ding off the catcher's mask, could have trouble remembering his kids' names. As you know, people are saying, oh, he, you know, he ought to make himself available to catch for the twins because he's making so much money. And Strasburg's making so much money, $175 million. And he, you know, he has the sniffles and he can't pitch. Fuck that. This is mm-hmm. just the and this filters down and it's the same thing with the I've written this about contract negotiations and labor relations and it's all the same this self-importance about baseball that sports are as, as valorous and important as like war and that you know to use Wade Boggs and sports you're in the foxhole like you're hitting a baseball and running in circles while wearing stripy pajamas. Give me a right. fucking break. And so this filters down to, I'm getting worked up about this, but this is deadly serious, that this turns into a culture of young men being taught not to bring up legitimate issues with right. with their lives. You know, whether, you know, this is a work incident. Strasburg's calling out, to, or, you know, we thought he was too sick to work. You or I would do, you know, we'd say, hey, I'm sick. I can't come into work today. This is how this is supposed to work. And this just gets internalized. And kids pitch with sore elbows. They, mm-hmm. football players, play try to play through concussions. And, you know, and this filters down and eventually you get, you know, Young men are so afraid of being labeled weak or not tough enough that they're they're discouraged from, you know, the in the most serious case, seeking help for mental health issues, which is just a huge issue that sports is driving the societal conversation in the absolute wrong direction about. And so, you know, this it's it's stupid. And on one level, like. It's something that we can treat as stupid, but it's also a deadly serious issue in the, you know, the way we talk about masculinity and toughness in society. And I'm just, you know, I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of seeding the 
the conversation to people like that. And I'm sure that, you know, if I'm being charitable, I'm sure David Ross, you know, didn't mean like this is the absolute worst thing a teammate can do. You know, I'm sure he has some. Well, I hope he has some perspective on this, but Mm -hmm. just the the self-seriousness of of baseball people with shit like this just absolutely drives me off the fucking wall so that's that's my piece and right no we get this all the time i mean whether it's illness or injury or paternity leave for instance if a if a player tries to take a couple days off during the season that often causes an outrage and i would draw a distinction between actual sniffles which this seems like it was not well that's what this that's what this is like that i mean that's the whole problem is people say sniffles to be derisive it's like right. no there's such a thing as being too sick to work even if it yeah. is something no, you know even if it are... is like upper respiratory or allergies like it's possible to yeah. get that fucked up from from breathing in mold if that's what this actually was i have no idea you know what strasburg's actual condition was mm-hmm. but it's it's possible to to not be able to do you know, a sit down white collar job like ours, let alone throw a baseball a hundred times. Yeah. Athletes are are strong people, young in the prime of their lives. Maybe they get sick less often than the typical person, but they do get sick. And sometimes those sick days are going to fall on game days. And it really, I think, comes down to, is this a case where by being tough, by pitching through it, by playing through it, you are hurting yourself and hurting your team because in many cases that is true that by going out there and proving that you're willing to pitch through this thing you're actually jeopardizing your own health and future and you're jeopardizing your team's present now that was not the case clearly here because Strasburg whatever he was feeling he was evidently propped up enough by the meds that he had his stuff and clearly he did and presumably this is not a case where he is hurting himself long term. And so I would say to some degree, you know, commend him, right, for going out there at less than full strength and and pitching the game he did. I think he deserves some kudos for yeah, that. There's, On there's the other not... hand, it's uh it's it's dangerous territory because I think just the fact that he was this successful the next time we run into a situation like this, Strasbourg will be the example that someone uses to pressure the next pitcher into going out there. Hey, remember when Steven Strasburg mm-hmm. was sick during the NLDS and he just uh, took a bunch of drugs and he got out there and pitched a great game. So that is what we should expect you to do. And, yeah. you know, in this in this case, I mean, he knew his body and he knew his health and he knew he could go out there and pitch well. And, and he was right about that. But there are many cases where that is not the case. And it's something you do to save face or because of peer pressure and it doesn't help anyone. And and if a player wants to jeopardize his future in exchange for one big game, that's, yeah, the you know, Chris Carpenter 2011. Right. I mean, it's a decision that look, if if winning is the most important thing to you and, you know, you already have your financial future assured if you're Steven Strasburg and and you want to go out there and risk that for one given game, that's that's your choice, you know, but you should not be made to do that or or made to feel that you are less of a person if you make a, a rational decision that you're not up to doing that. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm always just impressed that a pitcher could go out and do this because having been sick myself and knowing how debilitating that can be, 
to you know blog, let alone go out there and try to get the Cubs out in a potential elimination game. I mean, it's it's an amazing physical feat, but at the same time, you do wonder about the the culture that encourages or demands that, and, and that can that's, be an unhealthy thing. That's the whole problem. Right. Like we talk, and it's it's got huge injury prevention ramifications. Just bringing this back to the sport because you know who knows their own body better than an athlete. They're mm-hmm. gonna you know they're gonna know. How, how capable they are performing and it doesn't even have to do with being sick or injured sometimes you you know you just wake up in the morning you feel better than other days but being able to transmit that information like it's only okay to to lionize pitching through illness and you know Strasburg if he was puking on the mound he risked nothing other than the national season mm-hmm. like you know he this wasn't a case of him pitching through a shredded UCL or anything like that mm-hmm. but you know but lionizing that sort of thing is only okay if it's if it's also okay to say no mm-hmm. and i don't think that that we're there i just i remember in in 09 this was during the the peak of the the Cole Hamels' soft narrative in Philadelphia i don't know how much that filtered up to up uh up i95 to you mm-hmm. but it, but there was a you know the Philadelphia media and a lot of fans just didn't like Hamels because he was pretty and has a high pitched voice and is from California and wasn't like a tough Philly mm-hmm. guy. And Cliff Lee comes in, he's cool and laconic. Yeah. And, you know, he throws a great game in, in game one of the division series against the Rockies. And Hamels goes out there in the middle of a, you know, kind of a, a rough batted ball year. And his wife is going into labor and, and he pitches game two anyway. And guess what happens? He got fucking shelled mm-hmm. and, you know, almost got run out of the city by the end of the, by the end of the playoffs and you know just that sort of thing is just so avoidable Mm -hmm. if we're just a little bit more or a little bit less concerned with this 1950s conception of macho Mm -hmm. so yeah you you just have to figure out where the line is i mean i I, i'm sympathetic to the argument that that if you're making 18 million dollars and you know that's a separate conversation that money would just be going to ownership anyway if it weren't going to the players but if you're making that money and you have a high profile job and you have millions of fans of your team who are depending on you sure don't maybe take the day off just because you're slightly under the weather in the way that probably all of us have at some point because we're not making $18 million and maybe we don't have as important a job where people are counting on us. So if it's just like, eh, I don't feel like going to work today. Okay, sure. Maybe making $18 million places some higher obligation on you to make your, that's your turn in the rotation. Into, but, yeah, and that's priced into the, the yeah, you know, what ballplayers make. Exactly, that, yeah. That, that expectation in the the travel and the long hours sure. and they're you know mm-hmm. it's that's part of the job yeah, but, but when it goes when beyond that right. not being able to do it yes. like yeah there's a limit to that mm-hmm. yeah so anyway so anyway strasburg I- we're gonna <laughs> hang on i do not want to get through talking in this about this game without talking about the fact that john oh, lester course. picked a guy off first oh, base of course we have to talk oh, about that God. i mean that was First of all, a, a continuation of what seems to be a, a trend now of teams just using starters as relievers just because everyone loves relievers in the playoffs. And even if you have regular relievers, you got to bring in a starter as a reliever. So, yeah, John Lester comes well, turns in. Turns out the Cubs might not have regular relievers. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Talk about that and too. he throws back-to-back pickoff attempts. The first one bounced. The second one was wide. So I, I wouldn't say he has completely conquered his issues with accuracy on pickoff yeah. attempts. But... It worked, and he Ryan got Zimmerman leaning, and yeah, yeah, got tagged on on the back foot, and replay showed that he was out. The call, the initial safe call, was overturned, and man, end of an era. 
John Lester with an actual pickoff in yeah, a playoff great. game. No I, less. You know what? Full marks to Ryan Zimmerman for making him throw. Yeah, no. Like, Ryan Zimmerman, mm-hmm. who runs about as quickly as I do at this point in time, <laughs> like, you know, good for him for getting 25 feet off the base. Yes. Actually, you know, make him do it. That's That was very cool. I agree. I, uh, that was probably my favorite sequence of the game. Mm-hmm. So we've got a game five, a decisive game coming up today, Thursday. We know who is starting for Washington yet because that has not been announced. Perhaps Dusty Baker learning a lesson. it the day before worked out so well for <laughs> yes, the Nationals the last Nationals time. Nationals will never announce a starter again. So it's either going to be Geo or Roark who had been slated briefly for that Game 4 start. And, and really the whole... Strasburg thing was kind of uh, nonsense from a baseball perspective because the Nationals had to win two games to survive this series and Strasburg was presumably going to start one of them so if he hadn't gone in game four he just would have gone in game five instead so really the whole thing was much ado about nothing but he was brilliant and so now it comes down to Geo versus Roark and you know if you go certainly by the ERA and uh, the baseball reference version of war you would want Geo in this game i think the actual difference is considerably smaller than that would suggest probably yeah. what i want what i want dusty baker to do is to do the full bucky harris <laughs> you know you'll remember our conversation yes. with stephen goldman uh is to start roark having throw to one batter and then switch out geo because i mean even then you get the the righty lefty thing with the curly ogden george mogridge uh, situation. It also wouldn't shock me if Max Scherzer just starts tweaking in the dugout around the fifth <laughs> inning and, and somehow finagles yeah. his way into no, the game. Not at all. Uh, particularly with Ryan Madsen throwing 27 pitches and not looking that awesome mm-hmm. uh, in his one inning of work. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, oh, our, so I remember nothing of our over-unders, or almost nothing of our over-unders, because I didn't save the file and didn't keep track of who, who made what guess, but uh, CJ Edwards, sorry, Carl mm-hmm. Edwards, got into a game with, with men on yes. base and started walking yeah, people. Yeah, that did not go very well. <laughs> yeah, we, we were expecting Everything that. Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing the Nationals did not foresee is that Michael Taylor would be driving the big blow in this game, presumably. And that's, I guess, the the upside of the Adam Eaton injury is that Michael Taylor really established himself as a a useful player. I don't know that the Nationals lost all that much in losing Eaton because... Taylor is just a, a brilliant defender and managed to become an above average hitter. And he struck the the big blow, the game, the, the uh, game ending grand slam. Really, it was, uh, I suppose, already over because the national having a run anyway. But between that and the Addison Russell error, that was that. And the, the Nationals have just um, had a, a brilliant pitching performance this series. One last thing mm-hmm. before we move on uh, that the luckiest man on earth right now is Ian Happ <laughs> because Taylor's Grand Slam landed yeah. in that basket and it just looked really yeah. nasty out there and uh, in Chicago with wind and rain and so forth. Ian Happ looked like he didn't know where that ball was going to land to within 50 <laughs> feet and it landed it landed right in that basket so he got bailed yeah, out huge. Right. Yeah, the announcers had just been saying no one's going to hit a home run in this weather and there it was. So it might have been a home run if it had landed in front of mm-hmm. Ian Happ, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we almost got the Raphael Devers. Oh, my God. This has been such a crazy <laughs> week. I forgot Raphael Devers hitting <laughs> yeah. inside the park. Home so run. Hendricks versus TBD. 
for the honor to take on the Dodgers who will be favored either way. But this has been a fun series and the one series that has given us uh, actually fairly quick games and good starting pitching performances. I think we are now Mm -hmm. through 18 playoff games. I believe we are at an average game length of three hours and 41 and a half minutes, (laughs) even despite the Nationals and Cubs best efforts here. I'm surprised it's that (laughs) short. It's long. Yeah, it's fine. It's, you know, there's a certain, certain like first weekend to, you know, group stage of the World Cup first weekend of the NCAA tournament where we had two two days where there were mm-hmm. four games and it was just wall to wall from from noon Eastern to you know two mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning. So you know that's that's cool. It's a good you know it's a good advertisement for the game. I, it, nobody cares about this. I think the game time uh, argument's a little bit overrated, mm-hmm. particularly in the playoffs because it's like because attention's yes. so great with yeah know, between right. pitches. So <laughs> the only problem is like you're you're invested in the game and then you realize it's one thirty <laughs> on the East Coast and you got to wake up yep. for work in six hours. But yeah. but you're watching the game yeah, already. So maybe it's, it's not good. the best for attracting new fans, perhaps. But if you're already tuned into these games, you you probably don't mind too much. And there have been very very slow and not entertaining games, and there have been very slow and highly entertaining games. And obviously, the, the built-in yeah. stakes and suspense really helps paper over a lot of the length issues. So. Let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor and we'll be back to talk Yankees, Cleveland, Astros, Farrell, and more. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. And you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta. And they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's make-believe casino, where Sal makes up props on on all kinds of things. Sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS Podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so the Yankees pull off the comeback after going down 2-0 to the probably superior team, certainly in the regular season, the Cleveland Indians. They came all the way back. I believe they became the 10th team to come back from an 0-2 deficit in 77 Division Series tries, and they sealed it with a 5-2 win on Wednesday. CC Sabathia outpitched Corey Kluber, who knew that happened and the Yankees bullpen came up big again Didi Gregorius was supplying the power and that was that and this is the first upset really we've had in in the playoffs yeah it's been chalk completely yeah. apart and, from that and you know it, it to some degree it went the way that we expected and that if the Yankees were going to win, obviously their bullpen was going to play a, a big part of that. And that turned out to be the case. I think their bullpen had eight and two thirds innings collectively pitched over the, the three game comeback, which is the same number of, of innings they pitched in the wild card game. And that has worked out well for the Yankees. And of course, they got some good starting pitching, too. And Sabathia looked almost like vintage Sabathia minus four miles per hour or so in the game five start. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, I, I think that the Yankees earned this. I, I think that the Indians were the superior team, probably the best team in the league, maybe the best team in baseball, but they got outplayed in this series, particularly in the last couple of games, despite the fact that Joe Girardi gave them that gift in game two with opting not to review the hit by pitch call. 
in those last couple of games, the Indians defense just looked shoddy. They made a ton of errors, a lot of unearned runs, and they're not a bad defensive team by any stretch. They had the best fielding percentage in the league. They had positive advanced stats, however you want to break that down. They were a good fielding team, and it was a bunch of guys who were good fielders for most of the season just committing these mistakes, and the Yankees took advantage of them. The big issue is is Cleveland got nothing from their three yes. best players. Kluber mm-hmm. got shelled twice, and Lindor and Ramirez. Com- like if you put them together, they would have had like a decent one person <laughs> right. OPS. And missing until game five didn't help either. Yeah, nothing nothing you can really do about that. But I mean, uh, the other thing is, you know, Giovanni Urshela's right. in there for his yeah. glove, and he, you know, I compared him to Brooks Conrad mm-hmm. in my my write-up like you know what are you doing spending one of your last six outs of the season on this guy if if he's not just nails Mm -hmm. as a defender and you know you could like they would have been better off putting Lonnie Chisholm back at third base and I think this the one issue it exposed like there was there were just some weird stuff like the the Encarnacion injury I don't know what you do to prevent that I don't know what you do to you know Andrew Miller gave (laughs) up his one home run at the worst possible time you know at uh, Tanaka had a, a great start in game three. I, you know, there are just some things that are just difficult to to really prevent and foresee. But, you know, you look at this team and I think that the the way that they got managed last year, or it hit a lot of deficiencies sort of in the back mm-hmm. end of the lineup. You know, this this gets, you know, particularly compared to Houston or Washington or the Dodgers, they they, you know, the, the lineup gets really bleak after mm-hmm. four or five. And you know, it's just it. You know, if, if you're giving her shell a four bats every game, that's it's not great. You know, and and Roberto Perez was there. You know, who's usually an automatic out was their best hitter this series. So there's just nowhere, no way to pick up the slack. Like the Yankees got nothing from Aaron Judge. You know, you were worried about me 40%. setting the over under for a strikeout rate too high. Well, you know, he, what were the he struck final out numbers? In, I it think was like 80%. one percent. What? Uh, one for tw- one for twenty was Oof. sixteen strikeouts, I believe, was the, yeah. the final tally. So Ryan, o- hot <laughs> right. takes O'Hanlon is vindicated yeah. once again. Yeah, that's kind uh, of a scary but thing. The Yankees right. withstood I mean... that because Gardner <laughs> yeah. was really good. Because Gregorius uh, was this is Gardner cool. I, you know, in, in Game Five at the end, there was oh my 12, God. 13 pitches. Yeah, that, that was seven hours. That, that was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's scary. I think for the Astros, perhaps that the Yankees got so little offensively out of Judge in this series and and still managed to take it. And I don't want to come down too hard on Judge because for one thing, the umpiring in this series was iffy and very yeah, strange. I don't want to come off as a complete Judge apologist here, but four or five of those Ks, some of those looking strikeouts. I mean, this was a very liberal zone. I think the the playoff zone, just in mm, general, as as sure. Sullivan showed this week, was uh, it's generally a little larger than the regular season zone just because guys have good command. They're getting those calls, but in this series in particular, and and if the strike zone's extra large, well, that probably hurts Judge more than anyone else just because his strike zone is supersized to begin with. So there was some of that. And, and also, you know, the one hit he did have was a big one, two-run double. He also essentially saved game three and the series with the home run he robbed. That could have been the end of the series right there if he had allowed that. And of course, he had the home run and the wild card came too. And you know, I wrote my article about Judge in the second half when he was slumping, and immediately he turned it on and was great again. So I would not be at all surprised if he comes out and hits five homers in the ALCS. But that's that's a little scary for the Yankees' opponents here that he gave them very little at the plate, and they still got enough to get past a, a really great team. Yeah, 
you know, if you're going to have an easier time picking your bat up off the shoulder just because of your immense physical strength than any other player in, in Major League Baseball, maybe you should do it every so often. <laughs> uh-huh. I guess that's, you know, I would say you, you, you know, you don't walk off the island, but I've seen Pacific Rim, so I think Aaron Judge probably could walk <laughs> yeah. off the island. Uh, Pacific Rim too. Yeah. Yeah. Show me something, big yeah, guy. No, there's that. And, and I mean, this was just a total strikeout fest on both sides. Not totally surprising. These were maybe the two teams with the best bullpens in baseball. We saw 31 strikeouts in game five alone. This was incredible. The Yankees in what game four didn't throw a pitch slower than 96 the whole game. So this is, I mean, uh, didn't throw a yes, fastball didn't throw a slower, fastball slower, slower than 96. Than 96. And, okay. and, you know, the Yankees had Severino just once in this series in game four. He'll be ready to go game two in the ALCS and, presumably Sonny Gray ready to go in, in game one or, you know, Tanaka, even if they want to ride him a bit harder in this series. So between that and the bullpen, it, it was a great bullpen performance. And yeah, I don't know what you can say. I mean, it's a, it's a five game series. It's not representative necessarily of the talents and, and qualities of these teams. It's representative of their performance over five games and the Yankees had the superior performance and that's the end of the Indians who, now you know have what they've lost their last six chances to clinch a playoff series and this time Aroldis Chapman held a three-run lead against the Indians so that's a long look in the mirror when you put (laughs) it like that no it, it is and you know given their extremely long and agonizing drought that is tough but you know I think they'll be back here next year I see no reason to think that won't be the case so tough series for them and and yeah nice series for the Yankees I'm not shocked they lost. I'm, but I'm shocked that they lost after going up to nothing. I mean, they just like both. They looked as good. They looked as much better than the Yankees over those first Mm -hmm. couple games uh, as the Astros did versus the Red Sox. And and I'm just very, very surprised that uh, you know they the Yankees needed so many things to go right over those last three games. So they got, you know, one of those things changes then, mm-hmm. then uh, Cleveland's going yeah. through. So, you know, it's a, this has been like having no skin in the game. This is a really stressful <laughs> week. Like I, the, I, you know, I don't know how much of the, uh, the game four between Boston and Houston you got to see, but like I was just shitting bricks that entire afternoon. That was terrifying and you know it's just the whole week's been yeah. like that it's it's been really good baseball there's been a lot yeah, of it no, too it's been fun and despite no upsets until now it it really has been and, and yeah we've both sort of divested our our fandom as we have done this professionally but in the playoffs it really comes back yeah not also the, the Philly sucks so it doesn't it matter easier for how you, much but, fandom I'm but yeah you could just empathize with whatever fan base is currently fighting for its life because it's the stakes are very high it's very agonizing even if you're not rooting for or against anyone and so the best pitching team of the it's year cool. best was... pitching team perhaps ever out of the playoffs so so much for the pitching wins championships ideas that's uh disproven uh, at least another data point against that here this was tweeted out by friend of the pod jay kaplan just a, a couple of minutes ago uh that the two highest scoring teams in the american league will yeah. face off in the the lcs mm-hmm. so pitching does not win sometimes I mean, it does well <laughs> that said, it doesn't yeah th- well there are a lot of really good pitchers yeah, on on those teams too. anyway yeah, so let's talk about that series which starts friday in houston you have some new prop bets for us? Yeah, just a couple of them. Uh, 
Let me pull these up. Like I said, I have no intention of saving this document <laughs> or tracking them or, you know, tracking mm -hmm. our predictions. I just remember the times that I was right from the last time. So I plan on doing mm -hmm. that again. All right. Couple over unders, a couple witches graders. All right. So total number of Yankee home runs at Minute Maid Park. You you know, you notice the the large right-handed hitters that they have, <laughs> yes. like Judge and Gary Sanchez, and the Crawford boxes sitting enticingly close, essentially in the third baseman's mm -hmm. lap. Over under four point five Yankee home runs at Oof, Minute Maid. Man, uh I'll take I'll take the over, I think, right? Because we're gonna get what it's to to it minute made to be, to start the Guaranteed series and to. so yeah i think that right there i don't know i i could see babe gregorius going oppo a couple times in this series so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take the over there are gonna be a lot of home runs hit in this series so yeah yeah i'll take the over that it's a great park for right-handed mm -hmm. power like you could tell that jeff bagwell was on the team when when they were designing this place because uh, just the and I I hope it cools down enough that they open the that they open mm -hmm. the roof too because it, it it like it's just right it's right on top of the the middle of the city this um the the uh, left field wall it's not that far to hit it all the way out and you know I saw I was here to a game a couple years ago where Chris Carter hit one out of the park it was at a college game where Luke and Baker who's nearly Aaron Judge size uh, the first baseman for TCU hit one out of the park and i'm interested to like could air judge go to the roof of the building across the street that's the the level of uh of power yeah. we're discussing here contact, i mean the, the most yes. famous home run in the in the park's history was the mm -hmm. the albert pujols lcs home run off off brad lidge it hit all the way up the the glass so it's it's a good place to hit for power yeah. if you're if you're a righty both in terms of the wall being short and mm -hmm. aesthetically yeah also, the Halliburton sign. Carlos Correa hit the Halliburton <laughs> sign uh, in left center uh, mm -hmm. in game two. All right. Higher OPS, Jose Altuve or Aaron Judge? This is the AL MVP yeah, race. Yeah, basically, I I don't really believe that Judge's issues here will carry over. I don't know how much of it was umpiring, how much of it was just, hey, the Indians are really good at pitching, how much of it was just him being in a funk. But we've seen him snap out of slumps in a very big way before. So I'm not going to assume there's going to be a carryover here to either his slump or Altuve's extra hot streak. But I'll go with Altuve because he's awesome. And I don't know, maybe contact rate gives you some slight advantage against power pitching. That's that's what I think yeah, the difference is. There's something be. to that. It, this is going to be a lot of hard throwing guys with big sliders, and Altuve's kind of like I wouldn't say impervious, mm -hmm. but he doesn't strike out. Like he's not going to strike out 16 times <laughs> in a five game series the way the way Judge did, no matter what happens. So just by virtue of getting yeah. the bat on the ball, I think he's he's going to yeah, have a better I'm with series. You there. All right, and the the last one: total number of of relief appearances by Yankee starters uh, plus mm -hmm. one and a half versus number of relief appearances by Astros starters. And for the purposes of this bet, I'm counting Lance McCullers as uh -huh. an Astros starter. All right. Hmm. I think I might go with the Astros starters. I think because the Yankees have such an incredibly deep bullpen, they have less of a need to do that. And maybe their guys aren't quite as well suited to, to do that or don't have the experience doing that. I mean, Verlander had no experience before he did it in game four of the ALDS. Yeah, we should talk about that a little yeah, bit. That was, that was just... you know, mystifying in the moment and certainly it mystifying not is something exactly the expected, right word. but not crazy the more i think about it not crazy so 
No, I think it was absolutely uh, crazy. First of all, I think it was absolutely crazy not to bring Harrison yeah, if he's that. warm and try to give Verlander a clean inning. I mean, that almost mm-hmm. cost him yes, the game. Yes, I think that was the wrong time to and, bring him in if you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It just it felt like a panic move from a manager I've never seen panic before. Like AJ Hinch doesn't do stuff like that. He doesn't do the like he'll he'll get creative, but it just that just felt like he wasn't as in control as as he normally was. Like they, it didn't feel like the move you make, particularly if they bring Sale, in, if the Red Sox bring Sale in and they extend him, and you know that you're not getting him in mm-hmm. Game Five, then you're in the driver's yeah, seat. But you like, also I have Keiko really ready understand. to go for that game. So, I think I think the difference between Verlander and Keiko right mm-hmm. now is pretty substantial. Yeah, I mean it was. Uh, more understandable that the Red Sox did it, obviously, in an elimination game for them. Yeah, because if yeah, you need to get to. I don't know that I would have done it, but having exp- you know having stretched out Price in Game Three, I yeah. just don't know who else. And it might have worked if they hadn't tried to push get, Sale to that fifth yeah. inning. He got through four scoreless, but yeah, I see the wisdom in it. But it was very jarring to see it happen, and and there is some, you know, there's greater variants or error bars around making a move like that because you do never quite know and in theory Justin Verlander should be the best reliever on your team just given what we know about when starters go to the bullpen and they can really air it out and use their best pitches but if a guy has never done it and particularly if you're bringing him in in the middle of an inning there's some risk there and you know he he gave up those early runs and then settled down but yeah that was either gutsy or crazy or both (laughs) but i don't know that they'll do that with any regularity in this series but i i don't know that the yankees need to do it as much as the astros do so i i don't know i can't see them doing it i think the astros bullpen is deeper than a lot of people Mm -hmm. give them credit for although they've been using davinsky as mostly a one-inning guy uh later this season so that sort of that compacts you know, if you're not stretching him out, you need to finagle more innings at a mm-hmm. at a different guys. Um, the Verlander sale, the Verlander thing. So, like, this is just the norm now that starting pitchers come in in mm-hmm. relief. And yeah, it, like, there's it used to be there was a you know pretty regular throw day schedule. You know, you know that this guy could be available for an inning or two because he needed to get his bullpen work in, and he's going to start uh, in you know, in two days anyway, but there, so there are watershed moments mm-hmm. for this. And, you know, the first couple came in the 2010 LCS where the Phillies lost trust, trust in Brad Lidge and Roy Oswald uh, came in and uh, blew, I think game four uh, uh, coming in, trying to pitch on his throw day. And then Tim Linscombe pitched the eighth inning in game six, which wound up being decisive. And then there was the Madison Bumgarner five inning relief appearance in game seven of the 2014 world series. And there were two that really stood uh, two of those starting pitcher relief appearances that really stood out to me so far this year. The first one was Robbie Ray in the wild card game. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it just seemed very unnecessary that early in the game in a game that the diamondbacks really felt like they controlled mm-hmm. At that point, that just felt like a desperation move. Like you bring Sale in when you're losing at that point, or you bring Ray in when you're losing at that point. But you, you know, you don't bring, uh, you know, you don't burn your game one starter. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, wonder how much that messed with him uh, in Game Two, or if you know, if he had been able to pitch Game One and match Kershaw through six innings, then you know, maybe that's a then. Well, that's definitely a completely different series. But Verlander coming in in Game Four against Boston just felt so alien. Mm-hmm to me it's like that that felt like 
something that's going to enable managers to do even wilder stuff with with their bullpens mm-hmm. or, or mixing and matching their their starters and relievers. So I want you know how far are we from from somebody like Will Harris coming in to start a game and you know giving two innings and seeing you know seeing how that works like going actual full bullpen mm-hmm. uh, for one of these games. I just don't feel like that's we're more than a year or two away from that. If if starters ca- keep getting used in that way, yeah. like particularly if what if the Red Sox had won that game mm-hmm. and you know they they had Pomerantz lined up, but what if that happens in a best of seven series where you have to you have to uh, play on three days in a row? Or you have to stretch to seven yeah. games. So the, I the just pace of change it, with which uh, you know the pace at which managers are changing. It's incredible. Right? I, it's definitely yeah, ramping up. I remember up. like Lincecum, Lincecum coming in for that one inning, like. You know, he was the guy you throw. You know, he would be the guy that you you throw on his off day mm-hmm. and uh, in relief. You know, like he is that archetypal type of pitcher. Yeah. If if uh, he were playing today, but it just felt like I remember feeling like the Giants were somehow cheating. Mm-hmm. And as recently as like 2014 or 2015, uh, Sam Miller wrote something. This was uh, like back in the Jabo days, I think, about how starting pitchers uh, fared when they came in to pitch and relief on their yeah. throw day. And I remember like he he reached some conclusion like, you know, they're fine. You know, it's not like all Madison Bumgarner in game seven of the World mm-hmm. Series. It's not, they're not all terrible. You know, some good, some bad. I remember being really angry. Like, this is not how baseball's <laughs> supposed to work. And it is. This is just how baseball works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think last postseason was really kind of the inflection point, maybe partly just because of the Indians and the necessity and their shorthanded staff and partly because everyone just realized, hey, this might work. And if you look at like a graph of the percentage of you know, plate appearances that went to hitters who were facing a pitcher for the third time in the game, that kind of thing. There was just a, a big downward tick last year. And, you know, the percentage of innings pitched by relievers, big upward tick. And those trends have only accelerated this year. And partly that has to do with just a, a run of really lousy starts by starters that was yeah. not necessarily planned. I mean, the Indians would have loved to get more innings out of Corey Kluber and the Diamondbacks would have loved to get more innings out of Zach Greinke and the Yankees would have loved to go longer with Severino in the wildcard game and the list goes on and on. But it is partly, I think, uh, an intentional change, at least. So I agree. This is and a even new then, manifestation is, of it. This is different from last year because it's starters. It's guys who are supposed to start in two or three yeah. days. Like they're they're selling out. You know, the wild card game is probably a bad example, but you know something like starting Verlander in Game Four instead of Game Five, and you know maybe you're right, maybe just having Keuchel there just sort of gives Hinch the backstop to to mm-hmm. do that, but. It very does. It, or, wow, that was <laughs> terrible. It does very much feel like win now at all costs, and we'll figure out tomorrow. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm, I just wonder how much that calculates. Calculus changes when you stretch it out to a seven game mm-hmm. series. Like you know, you can run out of pitchers if you just keep using the next day's starter uh, for three innings at a time and relief. You're going to run out of next mm-hmm. days unless you're the Dodgers who have <laughs> right, seven starting yeah. pitchers. So we don't know which team is going to be taking on the Dodgers yet. But this ALCS matchup, I mean, look, I was looking forward to one of the best pitching teams ever versus one of the best hitting teams ever. Yeah, I really <laughs> wanted Indians. Yeah, that would have been but... the fun kind of, you know, unstoppable force versus immovable object sort of storyline. But this is a pretty good matchup too. I think Astros-Yankees, this is 
even. This is very close. I mean, not if you look at like win-loss record for the full season, but you look at the underlying numbers, these teams are not so different. And obviously the Astros have the stronger lineup, but this Yankees bullpen is really a a dominant force. And I I don't know this. There's not a, a clear call in my mind in this one. I, I might lean Astros, but almost imperceptibly. Yeah, I would say I'm a strong lean mm-hmm. Astros. You know, I wouldn't, but nothing would surprise me with this yep. series. I think that, you know, I, I wrote about this in my sort of quick hit recap uh, to the Indians-Yankees game five, but the, the Yankees being in the wild card game with that sort of haphazard Twins team really did them a disservice in terms of national perception because you know they were they had about the same run differential as the Astros. Yeah, you know, they were about a, t- about a plus two hundred yeah. team. It's just like that's a huge run yeah. differential. And they had you know, terrible the, the one run record well and all sorts of fluky and, stuff that probably yeah. kept their record down. And as much attention has been lavished on Judge, this is still a pretty deep mm-hmm. lineup, and they've got and you know you see something like uh, Cleveland had no bench yeah. and. The you know the Yankees can call on guys who actually know what they're doing to to come in and play matchups late in games on both sides of the ball. You know I, I think the Astros are still the Astros would be favorites, but perhaps not even as much so as the mm-hmm. Indians were. All right, so before we get out of here, let us just pay our respects to the teams that are out of here. Cue up the clume. You basically took yourself out of this competition. In this business, it's all about selling yourself. You admitted that you were the weakest of your team, and that gave us no choice. You're out. Okay. Can I go now? All right. So we have to offer condolences, of course, to fans of the three teams that have been eliminated since we last spoke. The Diamondbacks, who drew a tough Dodgers team in the NLDS, and no shame in that. They had an incredible turnaround season. They put together a a great top-to-bottom, strong pitching staff, really great year, and positive outlook going forward. But they just ran into the wrong team at the wrong time, really. And that's how it goes. And we've talked about the Indians at length here, but again, I, I think they are the favorite to win the Central again next year and be back here. And this pitching staff will largely be intact. Most of the team will be intact. So I'd expect to see them again. And then, of course, you have the Red Sox, who lost to the Astros and promptly fired their manager, John Farrell, as had been suspected, gossiped about as that series was drawing to a close. And this is tough for Farrell from from one perspective, and it's always hard to weigh in on whether a manager deserved to be fired or not, unless there's some glaring tactical error that led directly to their elimination. And I don't know that Farrell had a a great series and he's not a great tactical manager. And I I know that there are a lot of Red Sox fans who aren't sorry to see him go, but just in terms of team success, he is the first Red Sox manager ever to take his team to -to back-to-back titles. He won a World Series. And, you know, we don't really know why he was fired. Dave Dabrowski was extremely cryptic when explaining that or was really weird. not explaining. Speaking a weird thing, you know, sort of <laughs> not helping your employees out. Like, yeah. And and look, I mean, you know, Farrell was not a Dabrowski hire and Dabrowski was not around when Farrell won that World Series. Really, he was on the losing end of a, a series with Farrell at the time with the Tigers. And so that's part of it. You don't feel attachment to the person you didn't bring in. 
in. And Farrell had his ups and downs in a couple of last place seasons too, but it's tough. I mean, the Sox got bounced from a couple division series in a row, but they ran into better teams. And yes, they had some stagnation with their young core this year, but they also had that young core take big leaps forward under Farrell. And I don't know that I'd give him credit for the latter or blame him for the former. I just, I don't know how much player development is really the manager's responsibility at the major league level at this point. So I wouldn't really lay too much blame at his door there. And yeah, it was, you know, clearly it seemed that there was some unspoken stuff which might come out because often when someone gets run out of town, we we start hearing the leaks. some, about why some that was. Boston sports figure is going to leave <laughs> yeah, his job and he's going to get shit on constantly in the media? <laughs> Could no, happen. There's some precedent for that. Not. <laughs> but as we speak, we don't really know the details, but it, it made it seem like either he was not getting along with Dombrowski in the front office or he was not popular with the players. There was something like that going on here. And and maybe that takes precedence over anything else, really, because ultimately that's what it comes down to in this day and age. But you know, he he had a lot of good times and in just uh, kind of in the abstract, it's tough for someone to get fired under these circumstances after having a lot of success in the last couple of seasons. Yeah, I think that so uh, there's like an NBA truism that there are, you know, five good coaches and five bad coaches and 20 coaches who don't really make much of a difference. I think that that's broadly yeah. true with baseball. You know, you sort of look out of mm-hmm. the hinge Francona. Um, Joe Madden, Joe Girardi, kind of, you know, the the guys that, you know, for good or ill, I think are, are a strong net positive. On the other hand, you have the one year of Bobby Valentine, the couple years of Matt yes. Williams. And like Farrell <laughs> wasn't like that. I think, you know, I think he's, he's no. fine. He's a competent major league manager. I'm, I imagine he will mm-hmm. he will manage again in the big leagues if he so chooses. But yeah. if there's such a mm-hmm. thing as just, you know, not as well, running sort of running out of rope. Uh, in terms of the message getting stale, and maybe that happened here, yeah, uh, or just not getting along with the front office, which you know, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's not great for John Farrell, but it's sort of how the business mm-hmm. works. So, one yeah. thing I do like about just the the names that have been coming up with uh, this managerial search and with the the Phillies managerial search and um, the the uh, Tigers and the the Mets are looking for managers as well. I'm excited to see names like you know our old friend Sandy Alomar has been rumored. Uh, Demarlo Hale, who's been up for it seems like every yeah. uh, Alex, Cora. Alex Cora, and the Phillies are supposedly in uh, interviewing uh, Jorge Valandia, who's Venezuela. He's a native of Venezuela, and you know it's very, very unusual to see a non-American manager. So just in terms of, of people of color getting yeah. shots, and particularly guys like Hale and you know Sir Hensley Bam Bam Mullins, who, like, I would say he's my favorite uh, assistant coach in, in Major League Baseball, and, like, if you do enough as an assistant coach for me to know who you are, that's, like, pretty huge. So, like, guys yeah. like that who are just sort of beyond time to to get their shot at uh at managing i think it, you know if one yeah, of those guys so often gets, the, the minority yeah. candidate is the the afterthought the obligatory interview just to satisfy yeah, the, the so-called ceiling right. rule which is not a rule which has happened to demarlo <laughs> hale i feel like 14 times in the past 10 years so mm-hmm. i would like to see one of those guys get a shot rather and it's it looks like um you know, i haven't heard as much about the the mets and tigers managerial search but it looks like the red Sox and phillies at least are looking uh towards more experienced 
candidates, even if they're sort of not like Valandia is coming out of the front office, uh, but he's got coaching, you know, major league coaching experience. So it's good to see those guys getting a crack rather than that that trend of a few years ago where it was just, oh, let's take some random 41-year-old retired player who mm-hmm. knows nothing and has no coaching experience, but he wore our uniform. You know, we know how he right. looks in our uniform, the Robin Ventura. The, Mixed results on that strategy so yeah, far. Some successes. Some you can really resounding say, failures, you know, though. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm rooting for the reunion with Ruben Amaro. I know you've missed him. He deserves to be back in a Phillies uniform. <laughs> He definitely doesn't deserve to be back in a police uniform. I just maybe don't, we'll see like, that anyway. I don't know why you'd float that. What the? <laughs> maybe just to see how angry it made you and you use know, you as a no. gauge for like, I used whether to this be, will float. <laughs> I used to be Mr. Anti-Ruben Amaro, but I, you know, I think history has vindicated him to a certain extent, which I know is not a popular opinion, but like, like, like he's a pariah. Like, he makes Donovan mm-hmm. McNabb look like Bobby Clark. Like, this is just... <laughs> Why would you even bring that up as a possibility? Why would Matt like this is Matt Clantac fucking with us, right? Like he, even <laughs> if he was awesome as the the Red Sox first base coach and he's got front office experience, so he would be able mm-hmm. to work with a you know, with a, a front office that's trying to get more analytically focused, which I think was was part of the the problem with Pete McKenna was you know, not getting everybody on the same page, but like mm-hmm. Why? Why? <laughs> why him in particular? There is no less suitable managerial candidate for a particular managerial job than Ruben Amaro with the Phillies. What on earth are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. He he already knows his way around the the city. I guess it's so, a grid. Uh, it's convenient a, for it's him. Like it's a grid. It's not that hard to find your way which, around the city. Which, he knows which septa line to take to the park. Ben, it's just easier for everyone. There's one septa line that goes north south. Like, <laughs> like you get on the subway and it just goes up Broad Street. It's called the Broad Street line. It's not that hard to figure out. Oh man, I hope this happens now. We're gonna <laughs> just the We're gonna you. have to devote a special. We might have to do a third episode one, just like so we can get enough bandwidth to talk about stuff that people other than me care about, and then we'll just <laughs> clear out for for thirty minutes. So. Like, and right. I'm not a Ruben Amaro hater. It's just no, inexplicable. I'm not. I'm not. I'm really not. <laughs> All right. We'll end it there. You've you've had enough rage in this episode for uh, for one I'm week. I'm going to go drink so. some tea and you know get my voice back before Sunday yeah, night. You haven't, sl- you haven't slept yet. I have get some IV fluids slept. in you. Oh get back God. out there. We have another podcast coming up in just a few days. You have to be ready. So we will call it an episode. Thanks for coming on this adventure with us. We have a lot more baseball ahead. We will be back, as always, on Monday. Yeah, you have been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network.